So if you got your Bibles, I want you to put your finger in two places. They're both in Matthew's gospel. The first is Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Just put one finger there and then put your other finger on Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Uh, I love the fall for so many reasons. Um, Selfishly, uh, I like the cooler weather. Football is back. If you're a soccer person, soccer's back. Or maybe it's been going. I don't want to leave you out. I see you. Um, Other sports are back. Kids are back in school. Um, And we come back to rerouting ourselves in who we are and what we're actually doing in this space. You know, that's a question that we ask here a lot at Crossroads. Who are you and what are you doing here? And as important as that question is to be able to answer individually, it's also important to answer corporately. And so uh, at Crossroads, we have these things called our mission, vision, and values, and these are the dictates by which we exist as a church. It's how we answer the question, like, who are we as a church, and what are we doing here? And so first, our mission, if you guys don't know this, we actually have a mission statement. It's why we exist. It's our whole purpose, and that is that we are a biblical community where Jesus Christ transforms lives and renews the city and the nations. That at Crossroads, we center ourselves on the word. It is authoritative. In fact, we sit under it and we say, God, you teach us how to walk. You teach us how to do church. You teach us how to love one another. You teach us how to serve one another. We are a biblical community and we're unashamed about it. But the Bible isn't the thing that's actually doing the work. It's Jesus himself. And so Jesus is the thing here that's transforming lives. But we do that in communion with one another. And then we pray that as you know, Brian just talked about, we're the locker room, right, where we are then sent out into the world, and Jesus, through us, renews our city and the nations. Now, after a mission, there's actually something that we have to set our sights on, and that's what we call a vision. And the vision at Crossroads Church is very simple. It is the kingdom of God. So that when Jesus speaks of handing over the keys to the kingdom, he's actually just pointing back to what God has wanted to do from the beginning in the garden when he tells Adam and Eve, you're here to rule and subdue, that we are God's vice regents. By having his image put on us, he has given us the responsibility to receive the gospel and then go give the gospel, receive the kingdom, and then break out the kingdom out of our lives, not just here on Sunday mornings, but through every part of our lives, what we do, what we're becoming. And so then we would say that our values are then the vehicle by which the mission and vision of Crossroads Bible Church is carried out. And we have three of them, and that is worship, the wholehearted pursuit of God, community, the intentional pursuit of one another, and mission, the sacrificial pursuit of our neighbor. And you go like, well, where did we get these things? Did we just kind of like make a cool graphic so that we could say that this like kind of looks like this Trinity thing? No, this is deeply scriptural. In fact, if you were to smash the greatest commandment and the Great Commission together, that's essentially what we're saying we want to live out. We want to love God supremely, love one another sacrificially, and then go out and make disciples of all nations. And we play a small part in that role here at Crossroads. And hopefully that just whets your appetite for what the next three weeks are going to be because we're going to be diving in uh, deeply to those three core values that we hold to. What does it mean to worship God? 
What does it mean to live in community with one another here? And then lastly, what does it mean to live on mission? And as a part of this and going forward, this is kind of a a plug, but we're actually starting up a uh, new podcast that we're going to call The Locker Room, (laughs) which will launch off of our Sunday morning gatherings. And this week, we're going to publish our first one talking more about what it looks like to worship. And then we'll talk about what it looks like to be in community and so on and so forth. And then as we head into Genesis, it will also provide a platform to dive deeper into what we're going to be diving deeper into uh, this fall. So let me uh, pray for us one more time. And then we're going to stand for the reading of God's word. Actually, you guys can do that right now. God, we approach your word with reverence. And we know that you speak in it. And so we ask that you speak to us again this morning, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. Jesus is in the middle of speaking many parables, and these are two of the shortest ones that he'll ever speak. It says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything that he had, and he bought it. And I'll flip to 26. Starting in verse 1, going through verse 16. Now, I always wondered... Like, in these parables that we just read, is Jesus just being hyperbolic? Like, he can't possibly mean exactly what he means. Is he just trying to be extravagant in his language? And we'd be tempted to believe this if the woman that we're about to read about in Matthew chapter 16 didn't have to ruin it all for us. Because she does exactly what Jesus just spoke of in those parables. It says this, When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or they may be a riot among the people. Well, Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at table. And when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me When she poured out this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? And so they Counted out for him 30 pieces of silver, and then from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. This is God's word. You may be seated. Here is 
a woman who has found the hidden treasure. She has found the pearl of great worth and the disciples think that she's an utter fool but she knows exactly what she is doing, doesn't she? And is anyone else captivated by this story? I mean, I was just thinking about it this week. Simply by being here in the, uh, this gathering this morning, we're actually all fulfilling a prophecy of Jesus just by being here because Jesus says, truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, <coughs> what she has done will also be told in memory of her. <laughs> it's 2023. And we're still talking about this woman doing this simple but extravagant gesture of love and devotion for Jesus. And what she is doing can only be described with one word, and you guessed it, it's the word worship. We've got to ask the question, what does worship mean? Like, what is it? Is it just coming in here and singing songs? Is it uh, worship music? Is it Sunday mornings? Is it, you know, 15 minutes of Bible reading before we go to work in the morning? What is worship? You know, if worship is simply those things, then what this woman does doesn't fit into any of those categories. In fact, this is worship. And what Jesus uh, does is he labels this act of worship with a word. He says, it's beautiful. See, worship is about ascribing beauty to something. It's about ascribing worth to something. It's about what we treasure. It's about what we find our happiness, our significance, our security in, in life. It's what we love most in life. In fact, whether you are aware of this or not, you are in a constant state of worshiping. So that when God says in the Old Testament, you are to worship no other gods before me, the implication is that we are a species that God designed with the expressed purpose to worship. And if we do not worship God, the question is not, are we worshipers? It's just, what are we worshiping instead? You will worship. You will worship your identity. You will worship the cultural template for a fulfilling life that is put before you. You will worship your sexuality. You will worship sports. You will worship your treasures on earth, your money, your home. You might worship your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You might worship your comforts in life. How about your Netflix? Or the Coors Light? Or just a little glass of whiskey to take the edge off at the end of the day. Anything in your life that you use to find ultimate significance, security, love, joy, and happiness is the thing that you worship. You do not have a choice if you worship or not. You will worship. And here's the half scary slash beautiful implication is that you actually become what you worship. You become like the things that you worship in your life. And so to paraphrase a doctor of music who's now retired at Wheaton College, Harold Best, he said, worship is the outpouring of all that we are, all that we do, and all that we are becoming in light of what we value most in life. It is the outpouring of everything that we have and everything that we are in light of our highest values in life. And of course, proper worship is choosing God as that highest value 
in our life. But to choose God, we have to actually see God for what he is worth, which is why I also love this definition of worship by uh, now rest in peace, Dr. Kim, Tim Keller, who says that worshiping God is seeing God for what he is worth and then giving God what he is worth, which is exactly what this woman in this story is doing, right? She sees God. She sees him as worthy of something, and then she pours out something of value that is an expression of her worship. How much is Jesus worth to you? How much? How much is Jesus worth to you? That's a question that we all need to answer this morning. Because I want you to think about this story. (laughs) This woman is like this beautiful rose growing in the midst of this trash heap. It's burning all around because think about the two stories that frame this text. First, you've got Caiaphas and all the professional glass of worshipers. And where are they? They're in his palatial estate, living large. And they're making a value statement. A value statement about Jesus. He's worth killing, but he's not worth starting a riot over. And so they're scheming. Like, how do we do this thing without, like, impeding on our own comforts and control? And, like, how do we keep the peace? And then... Below this story, you've got Judas, one of the inner 12, one of Jesus' closest confidants, and he's making a value statement too. He's saying, how much are you willing to give me for Jesus? And the answer is 30 pieces of silver, which a good guess would be about 250 bucks today. And so you've got the professional class of worshipers in Caiaphas and the religious elites, and then you've got one of the closest confidants of Jesus and Judas, and they're linking arms together to betray and to murder the very Son of God, but in the midst of this all grows this beautiful rose of this woman worshiping Jesus for what, she is, for what he is. And it's not just happening metaphorically in a trash heap, but literally in a trash heap because where is Jesus while these people are off doing their thing? He is in Bethany. And if you know anything about Bethany, the Dead Sea Scrolls actually tell us that Bethany, on the outskirts of Bethany, was a leper colony. And that's why this city is actually outside of the city gates on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus isn't just in the place where all of the destitute and poor and unclean people would have been, but he's where? Some place even more specific than that. He's in the house of a leper, Simon the leper. (laughs) And whether Simon's been healed by Jesus or not yet at this point, it doesn't really matter because Jesus is there having dinner with them. And let's just pause here for a second. Because what keeps us from worshiping God? What keeps us from worshiping God? Some of you in this room, you you feel like a leper this morning. You even think about things you did this week and you go like, they almost almost kept you from walking through these doors. You feel unclean, you feel dirty, you feel destitute. And you might not be literally poor, but you feel spiritually bankrupt this morning and you 
just clawed your way in here. And even in this moment, you can't believe that God would really love you the way that he does love you. And see, this is the thing that keeps us from worship, our sin. Like, how many of us know this? I know this personally. You know this. When we sin or we feel dirty or we feel down in our sin, where is often the last place that we want to go? To Jesus. We don't want to go to him. That's the last place that we want to turn. And I actually love how Robert Murray McShaney, he describes this. He says, I feel when I have sinned an immediate reluctance to go to Christ. I'm ashamed to go. I feel as if it would do no good for me to go. As if it were making Christ a minister of sin. To go straight from the swine trough to the best robe and a thousand other excuses. But I am persuaded that they are all lies straight from the pits of hell. There is nothing that you can do in your life that would separate you from an opportunity to turn yet again and worship Christ. He will allow you to worship him in the middle of the trash heap that may be your life right now. Think about that. Because Matthew may have described Simon as the leper, but to Jesus, Simon is simply Simon. And Bethany is simply a city that Jesus likes to hang out in. And these people are simply people that Jesus deeply loves. And I want you to know that you are never too destitute to worship God. In fact, Jesus often goes to the fringes of society to invite the very least of these to come and worship him. And so Jesus is in the village of pain and the house of the unclean. And God with skin and bones is sitting there and he's doing what we do as humans. He needs a meal. And so he's sitting having dinner and just when this whole situation couldn't get any more upside down this woman who John tells us is Mary the sister of Lazarus and Martha she comes to Jesus with her most precious possession it's her alabaster jar full of oily perfume and this thing is probably a family heirloom Mark tells us that it's worth more than a year's wages it's everything that she has and she cracks open that jar and dumps that year's salary over Jesus' head. And as this happens and the oil begins to drip down his shoulders and back and down to his feet, the room is exploding with the beautiful scent of this woman's worship. And I was thinking about it this week, like, what would it have been like to be in that room with those smells and Jesus? Now, my younger brother, he's, he's a really odd guy. I love him. But he loves smells. I mean, I like when things smell good, but he loves smells. So he becomes like this connoisseur of perfumes and colognes. Like, he just really likes it. I love him. And I remember even when we were growing up, like, if I would fart, sorry to go there, but he would, like, make it a moral objection. Like, he'd be like, are you even, do you consider yourself a just man for doing that? I'm like, it's not that big of a deal, dude. But he just, he's a big smeller, you know, like, 
my wife when she's been pregnant before. Like, she can smell everything. It's, it's actually infuriating. But my brother, he described to me, I was like, tell me a little bit about this, because this is oily perfume, and, and he said, you know, it's actually interesting. He got way too excited, and he shouldn't have been this excited about cologne, but he said, you know, the higher the oil content in a cologne or a perfume, the more that it will smell. In fact, if you take a really high-end perfume, it will usually have a lot of oil in it. And this is why essential oils are so much, and a myriad of other reasons. That was a little uncomfortable laugh. You can laugh at that. <laughs> By the way, I'm selling some out there after service. <laughs> um, and so if you take a really high-priced perfume and you spray a couple sprays, if you do not bathe, my brother was talking about how this will actually last for a couple days. And this woman takes her alabaster jar of pure nard, which is entirely 100% oil, and she dumps it on Jesus' head. In his hair, it's in his clothes, it goes all the way down to his feet. And so this tells me three things. A, because she dumps the whole bottle, it would have been this explosion of crazy aromatics. B, they don't shower that often in this culture. And so C, it is a very high likelihood that Jesus goes to the cross smelling beautiful like this woman's worship. Think about that. That Jesus probably reeked of this beautiful scent that this woman poured out on his body. And I wonder if Jesus had this in his mind metaphorically or even literally in Ephesians 5 when he says, live a life filled with love following the example of Christ who loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. But either way, this woman sees Jesus for what he is worth and she gives him what he is worth. She has found the great pearl. She's found the great treasure. And as a result, there's this extravagant and even wasteful act of her worship in a setting where survival was so important. You have to understand, this is everything. But she does it because Jesus is worth it. And that's the question of worship, right? Like, is Jesus worth it? <laughs> what is he worth to you? Is he worth anything? Is he worth $10? Is he worth a Sunday morning here and there? Is he worth... Your 6 a.m., is he worth how you choose to eat? Is he worth how you choose to drink? When you drink, how much you drink, if you drink at all? Is he worth your sexuality? Is he worth your singleness? Is he worth the things that you choose to do and not to do with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Is he worth your money? And then how much is he worth? Is he worth a little bit, a lot of bit? All of it? See, these are all the questions that we have to answer. Apparently, the disciples didn't think so, at least in this moment. <laughs> because Jesus says this is a beautiful thing, but they coin it with a different phrase. What a waste. What a waste. And then they give a reason. Jesus, it could have been used for the poor. What's going on here? Doesn't Jesus care for the poor? 
Jesus says, the poor you always have with you. Do you know he's actually directly quoting from Deuteronomy 15, which if you opened up that passage, you would see is a very practical passage on how we should care for the poor. And if you read Matthew chapter 25, which comes right before 26, Jesus just gets done telling the disciples, when you care for the least of these, you're actually caring for me. And so they're rightfully confused. Everyone's ready to bash the disciples. I think they're just a little bit confused. See, what I think's going on is that they have become too calculated, too professional in their worship to Jesus. They're running this whole discipleship thing like a nonprofit, like a 501c3. And so they don't have a category for this radical expression of worship from this woman. They're going, this is such a waste. And they're probably thinking that for multiple reasons. Number one, this is all that she had. But number two, they're literally in Bethany. And if Bethany is what we think it is, they're probably looking at Jesus like, this is a poor and destitute place. This money could be used right here, Jesus. But Jesus seems so unconcerned about the poor in this circumstance. In fact, he rightfully says, the poor you will always have with you. And what's he saying? He's saying, look, it's not about the poor. It's about me. Am I not worth this expression of worship? I'm God. And this brings me to a question. Well, what's the difference between the church and a secular nonprofit? What's the difference between just doing good and living out an expression of our worship into the lives of other people. We both do good things. We both seek to help people. We both do altruistic things. But one is humanism. And the other is out of our love for Christ. See, humanism is exactly what it sounds like. In humanism, human beings are the most important thing in the universe. They're of the highest value. They're of the highest worth. This is the world that we live in. It's all about me. It's all about us. It's all about human beings. We are the chief end in the world. And I laugh because this has trickled into all of our messaging. I see people with t-shirts or bumper stickers and they say things like, be kind, love one another, coexist, do better. Then what? She's worshiping the creator. They're worshiping the created thing. And here's the difference. This is a matter of ultimate worth. In the church, we serve and love people, including the poor, because of the ultimate worth and value of Christ. In humanism, we serve each other and one another because we think that human beings are the most important thing on the planet. They're both doing the same thing, but quite literally from opposite spectrums and systems. And we should care about the poor. In fact, we should care about the poor more than the world cares about the poor. But the way that we do it and the reason that we do it in the first place is far more realistic. It has far more power behind it. It's holier and it's more sustainable. Because you can help people all day long with their physical needs and we should. But if they don't have Christ, they don't have anything. Nothing. That's true, by the way. Don't let the enemy creep in and say, well, it'd be nice if they had a home, but you know, if they don't have Christ, but they have a meal here on the side of eternity, that's fine. It's like, no, if they don't have Christ, they don't have everything. But here's the radical blessing of being poor, but being rich towards God. If you have Christ, you have 
everything even if you don't have anything. And that's what's going on here. And as a result, what they call a waste, Jesus tags with a different descriptor. What he or what she has done is beautiful. And then just like they give a reason for his waste, which is this could be given for the poor, he gives a reason right back in return for why this is beautiful. And he says, she poured this perfume on my body to prepare me for my burial. And the other gospel writers use the term anointing. But even though Matthew doesn't, doesn't mean that that's not exactly what is going on. This woman is anointing Jesus for his burial, which means that while, the G- while Jesus' disciples don't understand, even though he's told them three times he's going to the cross, she does. And she sees the value of it. And if this woman sees the value of it before the cross, how much more should we see the value of it after the cross? And what is she doing? She's anointing. And in its simplest terms, what is anointing? It's an acknowledgement and a setting apart. She's setting Jesus apart from who? From us. Jesus, you are king. Jesus, you are high priest. Jesus, you are God. And I am not. And you are worthy of this expression of radical devotion. And that's when Jesus says to the disciples, why are you bothering this woman? What he's really saying is, guys, what you don't understand, I'm worthy of this. I'm God. She's worshiping me. Worship is all about Jesus. It's all about God. It's an extravagant pouring out of our lives for God. And we can become just like the disciples and we make... We can just become so quick as Americans in, in, in our society to, to just think about the economics of our worship. We just dial it down. We water it down. And we're just like, how much of my life can I keep and take a little bit of Jesus in? And how can these two things coexist together? How much money can I give but then keep some for myself? And it's like, that's not... The way that we do things. It's like, how valuable is God? And then when he asks for anything, are we willing to just go, you can have it? But what the disciples don't realize is that by saying this is a waste, what they're really telling Jesus is that you're not worth it. And if you worship Jesus, people will look at your life and the things that you do in your life, and they will call it a waste. They will. I'm embarrassed to say this. Before I was a Christian, (laughs) I'd look at lives of missionaries and I'd go, what a waste. Dummies. (laughs) Going off like, we live in America. Why would you want to go over there? Like, the stuff here is pretty good, you know? Like, what a waste. Why waste your life? You're not going to put away for your retirement? You're not going to do those things? What a waste. Remember when my brother came to know the Lord before I did? And he had he'd done such radical things of eradicating things in his life. And I remember asking him first time um, after he'd given his life to the Lord and I'm just confused at the lifestyle that he was choosing to live. He, he dumped his girlfriend that he wasn't in a great relationship with. He stopped drinking and smoking. And I remember thinking in my mind, like, what a waste. 
That stuff's fun. It's so much fun. What are you doing? And I remember having conversations with him, and he'd just be like, is God not worth that? And I'd be like, are you insane? What are you talking about? But then we can do this as Christians as well. I mean, one of the best examples for me that I could think about this week is I have friends, and, and I know people that have been in positions of, of, of elite authority within companies, and they've made a ton of money. And you know, God sets people apart to do that and give it away, and that's great. But then when those same people that have those skills decide that God is calling them elsewhere and that their role in life is not simply to make a ton of money to give it to the church, but that God has something else for them, Christians will look at what they're doing because we base it on our own economics of worship and they'll go, what a waste. You have all these skills. You could have made all this money and now the church doesn't get all the money. It's like God doesn't need your money. He needs you to be obedient. And that's not to say that God doesn't set people apart to lead companies that are Christians, to make a lot of money. Sweet, do it. Serve the kingdom. That's awesome. But if we go, what a waste, what we're really saying is that that money is of more value to God than that person's devotion and obedience. Can we leave some room in our worship for God to call us to do things that break our calculated attempts at worship? Because when I read the Bible, I see some that pour it out. They're called to pour out a year's wages. Some are called to give it all up, like the rich young ruler. But I haven't seen one Christian ever where Jesus is like, I'll just have your leftovers. It's cool. That ain't worship. You got to decide. Is Jesus worth it or is he a waste? But he can't be in the middle. He's worth it or he's waste. What is Jesus worth to you? Unfortunately, our text ends with a more bleak evaluation of Jesus' worth being made. And the irony in this story is palpable after this beautiful act. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and he asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? And so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Do you notice what Ju 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 uh, Matthew is doing here? <laughs> this woman and Judas are both making value judgments about the nature of of Jesus in his life. This woman gives up everything and she gets Christ and Judas is handing over Christ for 250 bucks. And somewhere in Judas's mind, like this shift has happened and it becomes all about him and this is why in verse 15 we get this phrase from Judas, what are you willing to give me for Jesus? And I hate to say it, but in the church in America, like we've become a little bit like Judas in the way that we worship Jesus. Think about how many times you've even walked out these doors and somebody's asked you the question, how was worship today? Was it good? Was it bad? Guys, we don't get to answer that question. The only person that gets to answer that question is God. He's the object of our worship. 
Because when we say, well, worship was good or worship was bad, what we really mean is that our experience of the worship was good or bad, which really shows and reveals what we really worship. Our experience. Ourselves. And then this mind shift just kind of trickles in, and before you know it, we become the object of our worship. And I love a lot of the new worship songs that we have today. So many of them are great, and they're beautiful expressions of worship to God. But a vast majority of the new ones, are they me-centered, or are they God-centered? Are they about me, or are they about Jesus? we got to ask this question. Because so much of our worship today has just become a place to worship ourselves. I don't care if you don't like the pastor that's preaching. I don't care if you think that the songs were sung a little bit out of key. It's irrelevant because you're not here for you. You're here for him. That's what worship is about. Who are we worshiping when we come in here? Is this about me feeling good? That doesn't mean that God doesn't care about you. He knows better than you. And he knows that when you're enveloped in worship to him, when you're so consumed with his beauty, it's actually the best thing for you. That's the thing that'll heal you. That's the thing that will root out sin in your life. Not self-help. With God sprinkled on top. Do you see how sneaky idolatry is? It just creeps in. And this is why Paul explains this sneaky shift in Romans 1.25 when he says we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we choose to worship created things rather than the creator. Worship is about getting after God. Worship is about getting outside of ourselves. And this is why we call it the wholehearted pursuit of God here at Crossroads, because it's about pursuing him. And the wholehearted pursuit of God begins when we see God the way this woman sees God. He is worth everything that we have and everything that we are. Well, Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She broke that sucker open and she poured it all out on Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away skipping. And he sold everything that he had and he bought it all. Or how about this? Paul. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may have Christ. Or Jesus in Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Take up their cross. Follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone 
give in exchange for their soul. One question you have to ask this morning, you have to be able to answer, is he worth it or is he a waste? So then when we ask the question, well, what does God want for Crossroads when it comes to worship? How are we to live into a people who worship God, not just here, but um, throughout the week and every waking moment of our lives? I think it starts with pursuing him. Like we say, the wholehearted pursuit of God and then knowing them, knowing him because to know him is to love him and to love him is to give everything we have and everything that we are for him. So then the question becomes, well, what are our alabaster jars in our life that are keeping us from that worship that we're hanging on to, that we're so afraid to release them because we don't actually trust that Jesus is enough to fill the void that would come from giving them up in our lives? What are we withholding from him? Can I encourage you this morning to pour it all out? Jesus is better than the alabaster jars in your life. He is better than all the sex in the world, all the porn in the world. He's better than all the money in the world. He's better than every relationship in the world. He's better than the Wolverines. He's better than the Spartans. He's better than the Vikings. I love the Vikings. He's better than our 6 a.m. He's better than anything that we think is more valuable than anything that we have in our lives. Jesus is better than that thing. And I want you to just close your eyes for a second. And I want you to think about the things in your life that if you were honest with yourself, you would be worried you would be worried not to have them. And if you were honest with yourself, you would feel naked and, and, and exposed if you didn't have those things. Or maybe that one thing. Do you have it in your mind? Jesus is better than that. So much better. Because for all the pouring out that we do, we need something to be poured back in. And this is why pouring out is only half of the battle, because for every space that is left empty by the things that we shed from our lives, it needs to be refilled with something so much greater. And I've been asking you all morning, Crossroads, how much is Jesus worth to you? But there's only one more question you have to be able to answer this morning, and that's this. Do you know? how much you were worth to him. Do you know? Do you know how much you are worth to him? See, 10 verses down from this text, in the very same chapter, Jesus is gonna answer this question with a symbol. And he's going to prepare a meal. And this meal is going to answer that question for the disciples. And as they're in the upper room, Jesus is preparing this meal. And he will say this to his disciples. Verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, 
Take and eat. Take and eat. This is my body. It is broken for you. This is my body. Take and eat this body. And then he's going to come. Don't eat these. And he's going to take the cup. And what language does he use? He says, this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of many. Take this into your body. Drink it. I'm pouring it out for you. And I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then the text says, and they sung a hymn. They sung in worship. See, we can worship with singing. It's just that isn't all that worship is. They sung a hymn, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so we're going to model what they modeled. We're going to come up. we got ten stations around the room. There's like six in the back, and there's four up front. And we have the whole rest of this worship set to slowly, as you may, come up to the table. You come up to this table, and when you take that bread, and you take that cup, you leave all of your sin. You leave all of your shame. And you just, in your heart, you break open your alabaster jars and you leave them at the table. That's only half of it. And then you pick up Christ. You pick him up. You take that bread and you crush it under your teeth just like his body was crushed for you. And you dip it in that wine. And you take in the blood of Christ. The symbol of his blood that was poured out for you so that you would know that for all the pouring out that you do in your life, Jesus says, I have poured out for you first. I poured out not my alabaster jar, but I broke open my life and I poured out my blood for you. See, it only matters the answer to the first question if we know the answer to the second question. You can only Answer how much Jesus is worth to you if you first know how much you were worth to Jesus. Do you know that this morning? Let's lay it all down at the table that he has prepared before us. Because as it's been said, he or she is no fool to give up what they cannot keep to gain what he or she cannot lose. And all of the things that we choose to put our heart in, these are things we can't keep. And yet when we receive Christ, we gain the only thing in our lives that we cannot lose. Do this today in remembrance of me, Jesus says. Let's pray. Jesus, you may have said that this was a beautiful thing done for you, but we turn to you and we say, you have done a beautiful thing for us. You've poured out your blood for us. 
You have broken your body for us. And so I pray that anybody that approaches your table that you have set before them would think of the ultimate table that will be set before us anew in the consummation of all things. And you'll be right there, Jesus. We'll be able to see you and touch you. And we'll feast and dine with you. But there had to be this meal first. And so as we approach, Lord, I pray that we would not approach with irreverence, but that we would come forward and we would lay before you our sin, our shame, our grief, our pain, our doubt, our fears, our anxiety, our depression, all of it. And we would lay it at the table and we would walk away with your body and blood, which is the only thing that we can keep. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.